0: Please take your seats. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, David. Good to see you here Um, in the last of our series, our series on apologetics. Today we're going to be looking at some of the common questions that uh, critics of the Bible and Christianity um, ask us. But before we do that, I've just got some things I'd like to say. Um, If you've got the New Revival Times, if you turn to um, page four you can see the next series that we'll be doing starting from next week and I will be taking this series and this series is entitled there on page 4 what if jesus had never thank you what if jesus had never been born the positive impact of christianity in history you know a lot of people dismiss christianity they think we don't need religion and we don't need Christianity and all religions are the same and Christ, but religions a bad idea. We looked at that over the course of these four week series. And that Christians have got nothing, else, nothing to offer us. But if you took away Jesus, if he'd never been born, if we'd never had the influence of Christianity on nations, what, would, what state would, be, would we be in right now? And we're going to look at that, and I will show you that a lot of the secular authorities and atheists have simply co-opted a lot of the great things that has come out of the gospel. Education, medicine, uh, strong family units, value of children, valuing women. All of these things have come out of... Christ's teaching and Christianity, and if you don't believe me, well then go to some nations that aren't Christian. You know what I'm saying? God forbid that we should live in a place like Saudi Arabia, I would not like to live there one bit. Why? Because there's absolutely nothing of any Christian influence in the way that that society is run. And so if you compare um, societies that have basically no influence of Christianity with those that do, it's an interesting comparison, isn't it? But also, if we seek to see the difference that would take place if there'd never been a Jesus. And so, just some of the titles to sort of whet your appetite The Image of God, Christ and the Value of Human Life. Without the teaching of human beings being in the image of God and Jesus' value of human life, where would we be right now? Well, we know as people are dismissing the Christian view that all human beings from the moment that they are conceived are made in the image of God as people dismiss it we know what the problem is don't we with abortions on demand and people saying that that these fetuses that are that are on the inside that they're not even human that's what people are saying so what would happen if there was no Christ secondly mercy for the poor Christianity's contribution to helping the poor it was the monks in the medieval church that first set up hospitals and place where the poor could go. Then we're going to look at education for everyone. Christianity's contribution to learning and freedom for all. Christianity's contribution to civil liberty. It's not by accident that in nations with a Christian heritage... There is a strong appreciation of freedom, of liberties, of freedom to worship. Yet you go to nearly any nation that does not have a Christian influence, that's really you know, influencing the nation, you won't find any, hardly any liberties to worship. And then lastly, the beauty of morality. Christians' contribution to morals and family life. So we're going to be looking, what would it be like if Jesus had never been born. So that we can say to people, hey, you, you, thank, you better thank God that the gospel was preached in this nation for so long. Because if it wasn't, you wouldn't have these things that you take for granted. So we're going to be looking at that. Also, just a few books to mention if you want to take things a little bit um, further. Um, And you can make a note of these. One of the best books on apologetics that I've found, which is readable and and very broad and helpful, is called A Guide to Christian Apologetics, The Holman, H-O-L-M-A-N, Guide to Christian Apologetics by Doug Powell, D-O-U-G, P-O-W-E-L-L Doug Powell So I recommend that for an overview of how to defend your faith Remember apologetics is not apologizing for our faith It's defending the truth of our faith Another good book here for you is by Josh McDowell And it's called Answers to Tough Questions And it's a nice little book introducing some of the questions that people ask Some of the answers are better than others But it's a good book to read Um, Also, some of the things we'll be talking about today um, by John Haley, H-A-L-E-Y, alleged discrepancies of the Bible, when people say that the Bible contradicts itself. This is a very good book, it's in the bookshop to look at. And finally, just to mention, there's many more of course, but finally, something that we've found very helpful, my son Jake has found very helpful in defending his faith at school and things, is this book by Ken Ham as in Ham and Eggs, Ken, Ham, H-A-M, and it's called the New Answers Book, and you can get the New Answers Book 1, the New Answers Book 2 and 3, and this deals with all great things like, what about Noah's Ark, what about the dinosaurs, Uh, all these types of wonderful things, what about evolution, and these books do, do it in a wonderful way that's readable, so you can understand what's happening, you don't get bogged down in all of them. And a website that goes along with those books by Ken Ham, a very good website, it is called answersingenesis.org. Okay, it's one word, answersingenesis.org. Google it, answersingenesis.org. And that will give you a lot of helpful things for what if many people speak about and, and, and talk about our faith, That that will help you today. Well... Today we're looking at some of the criticisms that skeptics bring to the Bible and hopefully it'll be time for you to ask some questions, if you've got some burning questions that you'd like to see if we can answer later. But before we get to those, I just want to um, give you a uh, a few preliminary, my notes all mixed up. Wonderful. The first thing I want to do is just to give you a little preliminary understanding of the authenticity of the New Testament. Not in depth, I can only do that on the apologetics course that we're doing, but these are some headliners that I've been teaching on recently. And this is that the New Testament is the most credible ancient document that is around today. Many people say, oh, your New Testament, it was changed as the years went by. And that it was only after about 300 or 400 years that your churches had a council to decide what was in the New Testament. And it had been changed many times from then. It had not. You know how the New Testament, how it was formed? What took place was this. All of the New Testament books and letters were written during what we call the Apostolic Age. So that means that the apostles had not died out before the last of the New Testament books had been written. The last to be written was probably John's Gospel by the Apostle John himself. So during this period, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and all the letters that we know that are in our New Testament, they had been written during the lifetime of the the apostles and the eyewitnesses and the disciples that had seen these events. Luke at the beginning of his Gospel, if you read Luke chapter 1, the first few verses, it's amazing. Because Luke says, I am writing down this as history. For you, Theophilus, which means God lover, I have gone and inquired. You see, Luke, he was like one of those panorama investigative journalists. He wanted to find out exactly what had happened and was recording a history. And so think about it. These gospels were written during the presence of eyewitnesses. So if someone said, like Luke said, Oh, the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, it was a miracle. If it had not been so... You'd have had thousands of people saying, that's rubbish. There was no feeding of the 5,000. We just took our picnics and went to McDonald's. Where did Luke get this from? I was there. Do you hear what I'm saying? So everything that was written in the Gospels, people were around that had been in those places. So if you doubted that Jesus had turned water into wine when you read John's gospel, while that gospel had been written and read, you could go back to Cana. There would be people that were there. It's amazing that when Paul witnessed to the things that had happened, the Pharisees didn't deny what had happened. The Pharisees knew that the miracles had taken place. He said, these things have been done before you and you know what happened. So think about that. All of the New Testament was written during the lives of the apostles and the people that had actually seen and experienced those events. So they were tested and tried and tested. You couldn't get away with making something up because those that were Christian would say, wait a second, I was there. It didn't quite happen like that, Matthew, Mark or Luke. Or even the opponents, the Pharisees would say, that certainly did not happen, we were there. And so straight away we find that this literature, the New Testament, was written and therefore could be tried and tested by people who said, I was there. When Paul wrote his letter, if someone said, this letter to the Ephesians, was it really really from Paul? Well, if you doubt it, go and ask him. Or go and ask his friend Barnabas. Or go and ask his friend Timothy. And they'll tell you. So that's really important. The second thing is, is that when these letters were written... And given to the churches, Uh, they were copied and given to other churches. Paul in one of his letters says, once you've read this letter, I want you to take it to one of the other churches and let them read it. And so what would happen is a church would receive one of these apostolic letters from Peter, from Paul, from James. And they wouldn't just read it in their church. But they would copy it out many times and send it to other churches. Who would copy it out many times and send it to other churches. He would copy it out many times and send it to other churches. To other churches. The, the, the books of the New Testament went viral. You know we talk about viruses today and we say, oh it went viral on YouTube. Bang, 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 bang. All these views. Well the New Testament in its own format went viral of course everything was hand copied people were copying and copying and copying and copying and copying and copying copying. now that's really important because if I wrote something and I handed it to all of you in this room and you all wrote a copy and then you all wrote a copy for somebody else and they did the same yeah then if I then changed my original would you change yours? No the more copies we have the more sure that we have the original because as you're copying it if one of you if one of you was naughty and looked at what Bruce had wrote and thought, I don't agree with that crossing out I'm gonna put in what I think that would just be your copy wouldn't it and we would soon see with all the multiple copies going virus that that was not the case do you hear me yeah. so right from the beginning the security that what was written in the New Testament was actually there in the original because of course it was written on parchment and parchment fades, it doesn't last forever. Someone says, how come you don't have the exact copy that Paul wrote? Well, are you mad at something? Parchment won't last that long. Although the earliest copy, piece of a copy of the New Testament that we have was done in 120 A.D. And it's a copy of John's Gospel written about 30 years earlier. And you can look at it in in Manchester University, John Ryland's library. It's about that big. I've seen it. You can see the picture. Just a fragment. So the earliest is only a few years after the original was written. And they're being copied. And they're being copied. Do you know the printing press was invented around 1445? Now when the printing press came, that was exciting, because now it wasn't human beings copying. Now you could put the perfect copy and then copy it, couldn't you? Bang, 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 bang. And you could just... I mean, that was amazing. But before the printing press, when everybody had to copy by hand, before 1445... We have still available over 25,000 copied manuscripts of the full New Testament, of parts of the New Testament. So if someone says, well, how do you know the New Testament is accurate? Let's get out all the 25,000 pieces and compare them, shall we? We find that 99.5%, it's miraculous, is in total agreement. It's amazing. It's amazing. So don't not only that, but the church fathers, who were the church fathers, they were the next Christians after the apostles. When the apostles died out, we had the church fathers from about AD 100 onwards. And these church fathers wrote letters to one another, they wrote against all manner of false doctrine, and they quoted from the New Testament. From the different books they knew them. In fact you can make up almost the whole of the New Testament just from quotes. That's a bit like picking up a book in the library. Taking Colin's book and Colin's teaching on some subject in the sword of the spirit. And he's quoting from the New Testament all the time isn't he? Yeah? You hearing me? So from a very early age we find that the New Testament. And when we did have church councils. The church councils weren't there to to say what goes in the Bible they were there to protect what they already knew was in the Bible because people were coming around like early versions of the da Vinci code saying, oh I just found a new one gospel of Thomas what yeah gospel of Tom- Oh, gospel of Barnabas oh yeah this needs to go in the Bible and people say wait a second we've never accepted those books that's never been part of our church reading We need to make clear to everybody what we've always known as the New Testament. So the New Testament is one of the most accurate, if not the most accurate piece of ancient literature. The New Testament is is the most copied manuscript of all time. I haven't even begun to talk about how the Old Testament was kept in its integrity. I haven't got time. But I wanted to talk just to give you a little bit of that. A little bit of a feel, and you can look at this on the internet and everything. Because now I want to talk a little bit more on topic, which is about people that say that the Bible disagrees with itself. We can defend that the Bible is authentic, that it's an authentic document. You can look at it historically, you can look at it scientifically, you can look at the literary forms here, and it stands. It stands. But what about inside the Bible? people often talk about the Bible doesn't agree with itself. Well, let me give you some categories that we're going to look at before we actually go down and have a look at some examples. You know, when some people come to us in the Bible, they're, they're a bit cheeky in the way they do it. For example, somebody will come and say, your Bible contradicts itself. And you say, why? Well, you say, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1, 31 but then your God says in Genesis 6 verse 6 it repented of the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart Ah, you see God likes the earth and God doesn't like the earth which is it there's something wrong with your Bible well at first glance it can be like well God do you like the earth or do you not like the earth but we know that something happened in between those two verses don't we it was called the Fall, and so we answer that. And so that's a that's a simple illustration. Well, how, how about a little bit more di- difficult? How come your Bible talks about people like the patriarchs? The patriarchs means Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these guys. They're meant to be men of God, yes. They're meant to be friends of God, yes. They're like your forefathers in the faith, yes well how come they practiced bigamy and had wives how come they had slaves how come they uh, would do acts of revenge on people so you've got these men with many women slaves acts of vengeance and yet they're men of God and friends of God has anybody ever said something like that to you and you think oh alright well how do I answer that well, one of the most important things you need to know, which you probably do already, about the Bible, is that the Bible didn't sort of like fall out of the air in a lightning bolt. You know, someone's walking along and suddenly, whoop, whoa, whoa, oh, the Holy Bible, New King James Version. Oh, that is amazing. It just fell out. The, did you see that? It was like lightning. Well, oh, now I've got everything I need. It didn't happen, did it? Last week when we looked at the uniqueness of the Bible, we said it took over 1,500 years for the full Bible to be brought to us. Written by over 40 different authors in different places. Some of them were kings and scholars and philosophers. Others were fishermen. And we looked at all of that. It took time. And when we look at God's work of revelation, it was gradual revelation. Gradual Are there things that we know about that Abraham didn't? Are there things that we know about that Abraham didn't when he was on the earth? Of course. He didn't have a New Testament. I mean, he had a prophetic sight of Jesus coming. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the revelation. You see, God's revelation, as we look through Genesis to Revelation, was not a lightning bolt, bang, here you are, all packaged, ready for you. But it was gradually revealed. Not a lightning bolt, but a little bit like the morning dawn. As the sun slowly rises to its full height. The full height was when Jesus came. You know, Hebrews says, in former times, we were spoken by prophets. But in these times, God has spoken to us through our own, his own son, who is the direct image of and so we also find in scripture, Acts seventeen thirteen that God overlooked the ignorance of the past. Because he was preparing the ground throughout history so that it would be ready for the coming of his son. All the Old Testament points and prepares for the coming of Jesus. The law prepares for the coming of Jesus. And so God, another way of looking at this is, is, is like this. In the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament it's like the infant people of God beginning to grow in their understanding and education of God who God is okay So when you have a child you know that when you take that child to kindergarten that the child there's a lot that that child's going to learn before it's got adult education you don't stick them in for A levels or degrees straight away do you So they're in there and they're learning the ABC's. And they're growing and every time they reach a certain grade or a certain level or a certain year, there's things that they should have learned. It's a process of learning. Well, it's exactly the same in the way that God moved in Revelation from the beginning right through to what we have in the New Testament it was like the people of God were growing in grace learning more and more about God until God sent the final instructions if you like Jesus came himself the New Testament revealed who Jesus was and now we have in that the full revelation Think about the Old Testament people. They never had the New Testament to look at. They didn't know Jesus' teaching, this new command I give you, love one another. I mean, they could see traces of the gospel in everything that God did in the Old Testament. He was merciful. And so, we see that there was a time when God had not revealed his full revelation, where he allowed the growing up of the people of God so they did indeed have slaves at the time of Abraham all societies did does that mean that Jesus believes in slavery of course not we know better now don't we we know better now did they know better then no and it wasn't and God was saying well you're gonna learn this this is how I'm revealing myself so when we look at these people like How come they did, you can't judge the patriarch, you can't judge the Old Testament by New Testament standards. Can you? You can't say to to, to Abraham or Jacob or all these guys, haven't you read in Philippians? It was a growing purpose. The other thing that people often criticise the Bible for is the law. They say, you Christians, you anti... You, you know, you Christians, you know, let me tell you something about your Bible, you Christians. According to the law, the Mosaic law, homosexuals should be executed. According to the law, people, people that commit adultery should be stoned. If you Christians were in charge of the, of the law and the government, you'd be executing homosexuals and you would be stoning... Adulterers, and you have all these other strange, you know, despicable things that you do in the law. Have you ever heard that? People quoting the Old Testament, and some Christians are like, oh, I don't know, know what to say about that. In fact, some Christians are so um, ignorant about how to answer this, the questions like that that some of them go out protesting with scriptures from Leviticus saying, Look. Read Leviticus. Homosexuality is wrong. Look in Leviticus. Why don't you quote the rest? Are you calling on us to execute them too? No wonder if people are asking this question to us. Well, we know that, are we under law in the New Testament or grace? Grace. Now again, what was the purpose of the law? My book is coming out next weekend called No More Law. And in that book, one of the most important things that I talk about is what the law came for. Most Christians, I would imagine, don't really understand the law or its place because many are still living under it. The law came for two reasons and two reasons only. The law came to reveal sin. Reveal sin. The law showed us what sin was. and The penalty for sin. So, when we're talking about the law... You don't have to go on about homosexuals or adulterers because by the standards of the law, we're all condemned. Paul says the law has shut up all men and women under sin. So you say, ah, the Bible said we'll stone the adulterer, uh, execute the homosexual. Do you know what? If you can't live according to the law, we're all condemned. The law shows us the condemnation of everybody, not just some. But the law also restrained sin in Israel until Christ came. And the New Testament in Galatians talks about the law as a tutor or a teacher. Now who needs a tutor or a teacher? Children. In fact, I like the image of a tutor or a teacher. These were guardians that they're talking about. These were slaves in the Roman times that would look after your children for you. In other words, these were nannies. Nannies. The law was a nanny. And it kept the uh, Jewish people in check by saying, if you don't obey me, I am going to give you punishment. I'm going to punish you. So people did not commit adultery, not because it wasn't in their hearts. Jesus revealed this later, didn't he? He said it's not just about committing adultery, it's what's in your heart. But the law was saying, If you get caught, you're going to get punished. Well, I want to, but I won't because of that. It treated them like children until Christ came and the maturity of the gospel and the new covenant came into life. So remember, we are a New Testament people. And if anybody ever comes to me or comes to you and says one of those quotes from Leviticus, you can say, wait a second tell you what, the law says it's not just about those types of people. The law says we're all under condemnation. And I thank God for Jesus. Because if Jesus hadn't come, those laws would still stand. And all of us would be thoroughly and totally condemned and worthy of execution and eternal damnation. But thank God, though the law showed us how all of us were sinful, Jesus came and carried the law on our behalf. He died to the law on our behalf. And then here's the perfect example. When someone says about stoning adulterers, I say, okay, well, what did Jesus do when he was brought an adulterer? Did he pick up the first stone and throw it according to the law? No. If it had been Moses, Moses would have done it. It was the law. But Jesus came with truth and grace. Moses came with the law. He'd have done it. He'd have thrown the stone. But Jesus came with truth and mercy and grace. Did Jesus throw the stone? No. So did he disobey the law? No. Jesus didn't throw the stone. He gave grace. He forgave. He said, I do not condemn you. Because you didn't sin. Didn't say that, did he? My, you're quiet today. I hope it's because it's soaking in, not because I'm not making sense. He didn't say, I do not condemn you because you didn't sin. He upheld the law. He said, I do not condemn you. Sin no more. He recognized the sin, but he brought grace and forgiveness and freedom from that sin. Why could he do that? Because on the cross, he carried her stoning. He was not physically stoned. On the cross, the punishment that was hers, he took. That's why he said, I forgive you. And so when you talk about the law, you're talking about Old Testament. Thank God we're New Testament people. Thank God that we have outgrown the law grace so God in the Old Testament was setting things up He, he was watching his people begin to grow and develop in the truths. it took a while for them to grow to learn step after step it what didn't come by a lightning bolt but slowly the Sun was rising the prophets were prophesying mercy and truth not sacrifice it was getting stronger and stronger and stronger and then he sent His only son. So we see that when people often attack us in the scriptures, we have to say, Well, when are you talking about, please? Are you talking Old Testament or New Testament? Are you talking what stage of God's people's development are you talking about? Because I'm here to represent God in, in the mature teaching and gospel that we have. What we need is the gospel. Not the law, but thank God the law has helped me understand the power of the gospel So watch it when people go to the Old Testament and throw stuff at you, all right? Because often um, a lot of those things are are, are just trying to confuse us about about different things All right, now, let me move a little bit forward I want time for you to ask questions, maybe on some of the things that I've said as well Um... I won't go into that. Actually, I'll go into the gospel accounts. Sometimes people will go into the gospels and say, "You know, the gospels—they uh, they're against one another. They don't even know what they're doing." For example, let me ask you a question: Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry, as in John's gospel, or did Jesus cleanse the temple at the end of his ministry? As recorded by Matthew, Mark and Luke. Did he cleanse the temple at the beginning? Or did he cleanse the temple at the end? Who's right and who's wrong? People can say that. And sometimes you can think, oh, I don't know how to answer that. Now there's different ways of answering these questions. And in a way in a way way, it's not about being right about everything, is it? But it's about saying, Hey, there are answers that can be seen. So you got a problem with that? I can give you some answers Um, and so for example uh, some people believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice now stay with me on this one makes sense when Jesus began his ministry in John's gospel he would have gone into the temple he would have cleansed it and uh, how long do you think the temple stayed cleansed when Jesus went in the first time how long? an hour I like it yeah just enough time to set up the um, tables again they didn't receive it they were making relatively millions and millions of pounds this was the time on the annual conference of the Jews when they made all their money and so Jesus cleansed the temple they set it up within an hour they didn't take it It didn't all fall down and worship the Messiah so three years later when he came back do you think it was all nice and clean and tidy no way it was exactly the same way it had been so he cleansed it twice I don't have a problem with that view Makes sense to me. Others say, "Well, wait a second. Matthew, Mark, and Luke—they're talking about the history, but John—John knows that a history's been written. He's just talking about events. He's not necessarily doing them in order." You know, sometimes when I talk about my past, I don't—I don't do it in order. I go, "Oh, I remember the time when I was in Egypt. Oh yeah, and I did this, that, and the other. Oh yeah, I remember the time when I was in France." And ah, but Bruce. You're in France before Egypt. Yeah, that's right. Well, why didn't you say that? I'm just talking about the past. So it might be that John is not interested. He says, well, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know when everything happened. I'm just telling the story as I, I feel that it should be. So there's two opinions. You say, well, which one do I accept? Well, either of them are plausible. I prefer the first one. But there's an answer is what I'm trying to tell you. If we, we might not know where the answer is, but there are answers, plausible answers. What about Luke chapter 8 and verse 26? Luke chapter 8 verse 26 talks about one Gadarean demoniac. Do you remember who went into the pigs? Luke chapter 8 verse 26. But if you read Matthew chapter 8 verse 28, there were two Gadarean demoniacs. Luke says 1, Luke eight twenty six. 26. Matthew says 2, Matthew 8, verse 28. So who was right and who was wrong? Was Luke right, there was one, and he got it wrong? I mean, was Luke right, there was one, and Matthew got it wrong? Or was Matthew right, there was two, and Luke had got it wrong? Well, again, we can give answers and thoughts to these things. I believe that there was two. There was two. As Matthew said, but Luke was focusing in on the story of one. Let me give you an illustration. When you see a newspaper report on, say, a ferry disaster or something, different newspapers will report it in different ways. So you might read the... Daily Telegraph or the Times report on the ferry disaster and it gives you all the number of people that died, all the number of people that were saved, the name of the captain, and it gives you all the overall facts, yeah? And that's the Times or the Telegraph. But then when you go to, say, the sun or the star, it says, it says, special interview with survivor of ferry disaster. And they're not talking about, Everybody are they? They're just going to report and give you what happened from the perspective of a survivor. Do you hear what I'm saying? So there's many way of reporting history. So it's totally feasible that Luke was looking and going through the story of one particular individual and wished to highlight that. Where Matthew was saying, "Well, actually, there was two of them. It's no big deal." But some people will launch these questions at you, and if you've not even thought about it, maybe, maybe you've not. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time any of this has been raised. Is that correct? Anybody? Is there anybody here who never realised there was one demoniac and two demoniac? Anyway, didn't they? Okay. Well, better I raise it than some fundamentalist atheist who wants to trash your faith, All right? Did Jesus preach on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit? Or did he preach in Luke on the sermon of the plain? Blessed are the poor. Matthew says he preached on the sermon of the mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., etc. Luke says he preached the message on the plain. And he didn't say the full blessed are the poor in spirit. He just said, blessed are the poor. Huh. Did he preach on a mountain? Did he preach on a plain? Not plain, a plain. Did he preach the full or did he preach the half? And who's right? Again, it can hit you and you can go, ah, I don't know. Well, it's very easy, very easy to to explain this. Jesus preached both on the mountain and the plain. Don't think that Jesus only ever told a parable once in his ministry or a sermon once. Like Jesus came and said, today in this village I'm going to give a parable of the sower and I'm never going to give it again, I'm going to give it once, so write it down, and you'll never hear it from me again. No, Jesus had the message of a kingdom, didn't he? And he was going from village to village, and town to town. Don't you know he would have used his parables again, and again, and again, and his sermons again, and again, and again, to new people? I think of sermons and teachings that I've done again and again and again. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, us too, Bruce. Give us something fresh, please. But I've been teaching things again and again and again. Courses I've taught again and again and again to different students. And although the basic context is the same, sometimes I'll feel led to shorten it, lengthen it. I'll spend more time on one aspect as the Holy Spirit leads me than I have done before. Do you hear what I'm saying? So, you have your core message and messages, and Jesus did, but he would have been preaching similar sermons, similar messages again and again and again and again, and in many different forms and in many different ways. He preached it on the mountain, he preached it on the plain, he emphasized a longer version, he did it in a clipped version. Blessed are the poor, and let them think about it. All of these things, it's not really a problem for us. And I'm giving you these as examples uh, of many things that people will come to that, if you just step back and think about, aren't a problem at all. How about the genealogy of Jesus? You know, at the beginning of Matthew, you've got the genealogy of Jesus, and you've got the genealogy of Jesus in Luke, haven't you? Going right back. Well, if you compare the lists, there's some differences, different names. Who got it right? Did Matthew get the genealogy of Jesus right? Or did Luke get the genealogy of Jesus right? And you can struggle with these things unless you know that Luke was giving the genealogy of Jesus through his mother Mary. Because he came from Mary. But his adoptive father, Joseph, Matthew was tracing Jesus' genealogy back through Joseph. And Mary and Joseph were related, you know that. They were, they were cousins. And so when you, when you see the genealogy through Mary, Mary's father, Mary's grandfather, Mary's great-grandfather, then Joseph, you see that they have common ancestors because they were loosely related. But at times you see changes because it's two different genealogies, you understand. And, um, people, and, and I'm just giving you the sort of like... Broad strokes of this. You can dig deeper into everything I'm saying and seeing it even more accurately should you want to do it. I'm just trying to show you that there are answers. Here's a few more. We're probably going to go on about five minutes late or maybe even ten minutes late today. I'm sorry about that, but I want to get this out. Where did Cain and Abel get their wives from? Okay. Where did Cain and Abel get their wives from? I can give you a probable answer for that. Cain and Abel married their sisters. Because Genesis 5 says that uh, Adam and Eve had other children. And someone immediately goes, I didn't think you were able to marry your sister. Remember gradual revelation? That came in in the law of Moses. And for a good reason. Remember in those days, there was an incredible gene pool within humanity. The whole genes of humanity were there. So the idea that you married your sister or your your very close cousin and you end up, you know, people say you can have genetic difficulties if you marry your sister, which you, you can, and inbreeding. Well, at that time, the gene pool was so large that there was no problems doing that. But there were two times in Bible history when the gene pool that was large, bottlenecked and got narrow. And then bottlenecked and got narrow. When were those? The first was the Tower of Babel. When people's languages was confused, and so groups of people with languages went off and married amongst themselves. So there wasn't the big gene pool that was there before, it was more localized by language. So that was the beginning of narrowing it down. And then of course on the flood, the gene pool of humanity was narrowed down to Noah, his three sons, and their wives. Or really, the three sons and their three wives. Because I don't think Noah had any children after that. So think about that. No wonder by the time of Moses it was dangerous to marry his sister. Okay? So, we sometimes think backwards and we take something that's future and we bring it back. And we think, oh, you can't marry your sister. No, you shouldn't marry your sister. It's bad for you. But in those days with... Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel wasn't a problem at all. After all, Adam—I mean Eve—came out of Adam's own, uh, yeah, rib. So it wasn't a problem. Just giving you ideas about about this. What about the dinosaurs? Well, there's Some great stuff in this Ken handbook and on his website about this. What happened to them? Well, they were around before the ark. But we believe—or many scientists believe—Christians who, who who are looking at this scientifically that after what took place after the ark the whole of the environment of the world changed dramatically because not only did we see the waters come from below but the waters from above came down and scientists have said that they can see in the atmosphere where they used to be a whole area of like water steam That gave a greenhouse effect around the globe and protected it from radiation and things like that. So that's why the living conditions before the, the flood were totally different. And sometimes in fossils you can see like massive bananas and things like that and huge leaves. Because it was like living in a greenhouse. People lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Have you ever read that and thought, how can someone live 800 years? You'll find that it was before the flood. When the environment was conducive to that. Even now people don't understand why humans die so young. Why can't they, the aging process be stopped, you see? Someone says, how can you get a big dinosaur on the ark? You take it when it's small. But after the flood, exactly. I'm just saying, there are answers. You take it when it's small. And it was a miracle. God did it. Afterwards... We find we have things like the ice age and everything like that. And people are wondering about the extinction of the dinosaurs. And non-Christians will talk about anything but a flood. A meteor. Some disaster that caused the ice age. Something happened disastrous. It was the flood. It was the flood. And that's why when you see these dinosaurs and mammals that are, that are fossilized, it's because of this tremendous thing that took place um, uh, with them. And we could talk about many other things, but, um, uh,